Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 7. We continue with our ongoing Sunday morning series entitled, The Gospel That Sanctifies and Unifies. Studies in the book of Romans, and this is message number 15 in our series. The entirety of chapter 7 will be our text, but I'm going to read only the first six verses to begin the message. Verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We're going to find that in these next two chapters of Romans, chapters 7 and 8, Paul describes how to have victory over sinning in our Christian lives. Well, that's a practical thing, wouldn't you say? We all need that. In chapter 7, he starts by describing how not to have victory. (laughs) And that's by depending on the law. You know, sometimes it's important to see how to do something by how not to do it. That's what Paul does. A large segment of his audience are Jewish believers who continue to cling to the rituals of the Mosaic law, and they expect the keeping of those rituals to sanctify them and make them spiritual and pleasing to God. And of course, that's not correct, as we have seen all through our studies in the book of Romans thus far. In chapter 8, Paul explains that the way to have victory over sinning is by depending on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ who lives within each one of us who are children of God. And that would include those Jewish believers that he's speaking to in the Roman church as well. I've titled the message today, The Deadening Effects of Legalism. Now I fully realize that we are not a Jewish congregation. We're a Gentile congregation. But as we shall see, the principles we're going to study today apply to Gentiles as well. All believers have the problem of indwelling sin, and the tendency is to deal with it through reliance on self and through some system of our own devising. Well, that will ensure that we do not experience victory over sinning. If you rely on yourself or some system other than Christ, that's where we find our strength and grace to live the Christian life. But if you don't, Rely upon that, you will fail, as we're going to see today. We start now with verse 1. Let me read it again. Paul says, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? Paul directs his attention here to those who know the law. Well, this would have been the Jewish believers 
in the church at Rome. Zane Hodges believes that the Jewish believers comprised only a minority of the church at Rome. And for that matter, that would have been the case in most of the churches that Paul established. They were mostly Gentile churches, including the one here at Rome. But these Jews, though a minority, were an influential minority, for they knew the Old Testament scriptures. But with that came a little bit of baggage, too, because they tended to cling to the Mosaic law, the rituals, as we're going to see, and as we've seen throughout this study. And not to mention, Messiah was Jewish, so no wonder these Jews were so influential. What would be the equivalent in the 21st century church? We're obviously far displaced from the first century Roman church, but what would be the equivalent today in churches and with believers? Well, we're talking here about those believers who think they must hold to certain rules or standards or lists to be sanctified and to be spiritual in God's eyes and thereby accepted by him. Well, that's a problem. So whether it's the first century Jewish believers or the 21st century predominantly Gentile believers, we still have the same problem. Multitudes of individual believers and even many churches as a whole have fallen prey to this mentality, including large segments of fundamentalism, that I have to keep this list or I have to do this set of things, keep these rules, follow these standards in order to be spiritual. And often with that, as I've said many times, comes a condescending spirit. We are more spiritual than the church down the street because they don't have our kind of music or our kind of dress or our Bible version. You know, that kind of stuff. It's very condescending. We need to be careful then when we study the book of Romans not to tune out what we read that Paul is speaking to Jewish believers and us thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me because he's talking to Jewish believers. No, this applies very much so in the 21st century as it did in the first. And it's quite possible for us today, even if we're not presently living legalistically, to fall prey to that. It's like a magnet, legalism is. It draws in believers toward it so that people begin to live legalistically rather than free in Christ. Now, living free in Christ doesn't mean we live licentiously. We understand that from our previous messages. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, certainly not, Paul said. Paul says here, don't you know that the law has dominion, that is rule, over a man as long as he lives? He's making the point that the Mosaic law can only have authority in a person's life as long as they are alive. You say, well, that's kind of obvious. Well, but there's a very important spiritual truth here, if you'll hold that thought for a moment. Once a person has died, the law cannot rule over them. And Paul illustrates here in verses 2 and 3 with an example from the Mosaic law, the commands about divorce and remarriage. Now, I must point out here that Paul's purpose is not to speak about the doctrine of divorce and remarriage per se. He's merely using it as an illustration to talk about the extent of the law's authority over a Jewish person. So he's really not dealing with issues of marriage and divorce. And I think churches, when they're working on their doctrinal statements or they're trying to arrive at a position on that, shouldn't look to this text as a primary text. 
There are other places to go in the scriptures. This is just used by way of illustration. Well, let's read these verses, 2 and 3. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. The Mosaic law specified that a married woman was bound to her husband in marriage as long as he was alive. Now, obviously, we know that the law allowed divorce under certain extenuating circumstances, but that's not Paul's point here. He's speaking generally, emphasizing that the law required marriage for life. And that's true. If the wife married someone else while the husband was alive, she was considered an adulteress. But once her husband had died, that wife was free to marry another, for she was free from the quote-unquote law of her husband. Now again, this is not intended as a treatise on divorce and remarriage, but rather as an illustration. So what then is Paul's point? Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. In a spiritual sense, those Jews who had become believers in Jesus Christ were now dead to the law. And that's important for them to grasp. Remember back to chapter 6. When you were regenerated, you died with Christ. You were buried with Christ. You rose with Christ. That was true of these Jewish believers as well. From that point forward, you're free from any legal system that binds. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Because you died to the law, the law no longer has dominion or rule over you. Your new spouse, quote-unquote, is Christ, so to speak. Incidentally, this passage is not teaching that you are now Christ's bride. That's terminology that applies later. The determination as to which believers comprise the bride of Christ will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ. They are his faithful servants who will be glorified to co-rule with him as his bride and co-regent in the millennium. Paul is simply applying the illustration of verses 2 and 3 to the Christian life, and he's saying this, You died to the law, you're now free to marry another, and you've married Christ, so to speak. What's the purpose of this new union? Well, verse 4 tells us that we should bear fruit to God. We are now to live in holiness and righteousness. And thankfully, that's been made possible for us by Jesus. He's put his Holy Spirit within us. Look at verses 5 and 6. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, Hodges translates this, the yearnings for sin that the law produced were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by or held back by, Hodges says, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Prior to believing on Jesus for eternal life, these Jews did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. 
Now, we do believe they were regenerated in an Old Testament sense. They were believers. But they had not believed on Jesus. So when they believed on Jesus, the Holy Spirit moved in, took up residence. And they became, quote-unquote, married to Christ. Consequently, their fruit was unto death in the past, spiritual deadness. That is because the law was a dominating presence and actually prompted inward yearnings to sin. How so? Well, Zane Hodges says, in the light of Paul's subsequent statement about the law arousing lust, for example, in verse 7, it is likely that he has in mind the way negative commands so easily awaken yearnings for forbidden sin. These yearnings were ones that the law actually produced, as in fact it did in the case of the command not to covet or lust in verse 7. Let me illustrate this. It's kind of like putting a sign on a newly painted park bench that reads, Do not touch wet paint. And what does everybody want to do? They want to touch it, in spite of the order not to touch it. That's just the stinkers that we are. Paul says the law had that effect. The sinful urges within our bodies, fueled by the fires of the law, resulted in our bodies bearing fruit to death or spiritual deadness. Zane Hodges says, as Paul will make clear a little later, this is not a reflection on the law itself. On the contrary, it is the result of the law's counterproductive influence on the flesh. End quote. Bob Wilkin, who was the protege of Zane Hodges, adds this comment, quote, Paul was describing the view of the law held by the Pharisees of his day. Their legalistic devotion to the law, rather than to the one who gave the law, was a terrible error. When Jews came to faith in Christ for everlasting life and gave up trying to be justified by means of the law, often they would continue to look to the law as the means of sanctification, end quote. But without the aid of the Holy Spirit, our inward yearnings are dominated by fleshly responses. Isn't that your experience? It's mine. When I don't rely upon, depend upon the Holy Spirit, those inward yearnings that Paul talks about in verse 5 are dominated by fleshly responses. That's just the nature of the beast. Now that we've died to the law and therefore have been delivered from the law's dominance in our lives, we can live in newness of life through the Holy Spirit rather than the oldness of the letter. Law living, legalism, leads to spiritual deadness. For the law holds us back. It hinders us. I chuckle now at the years I spent living in legalistic fundamentalism. The attitude of many within those segments of fundamentalism is, we are so much better spiritually than others. And they really had the attitude that they had a, in fact they use this term often, we have higher standards. Which implies that everyone else around them has lower standards, right? Sure, that was a condescending spirit that they had. But the irony of that is that legalism was actually holding them back spiritually. It actually was not contributing to them moving forward in Christ. It was causing deadness. Legalism causes deadness. Don't miss that. I hope fundamentalists will listen to this message. It's not just fundamentalists, by the way. There are other segments of evangelical Christianity that are just caught up with rules and lists and this sort of way of doing things, a legalistic focus, 
And it's holding them back. It's not moving them forward. On the other hand, spirit-filled living leads to spiritual life and vibrancy, leading us onward and upward. And why is that? Well, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Vibrancy. Now, that being the case, why would any Christian who has died to the law through union with Christ return to the law's dominance in their lives? Yet it happens all the time. Is that not an outright rejection of the Holy Spirit? Hmm. Is it not setting oneself up for defeat and failure? Indeed it is. Tragically, legalism holds back multitudes of Christians from victorious Christian living. I don't want that to be the case in my life anymore. There was a time in my past where that was the case, but I've moved past that by God's grace, and I want to stay moved past it. I don't want to return. And I want you all to have that same spirit. You'll find great freedom and victory in Christ. In the next couple of verses, Paul makes an important clarification. Look at verses 7 and 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness, that is lust, unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. After warning in verse 5 of the law's tendency to produce yearning to sin, Paul asks, is the law itself sinful? And for the third time within two chapters, he emphatically answers, certainly not. Rather, the purpose of the law is to shine a spotlight on sin. You know where you go in theaters where you watch a play? They have those big spotlights in the back of the room that if you look at them, blind you, but they're intended to shine on certain subjects on the stage to focus your attention on them. That's what the law does with sin. It shines a bright light. It exposes sin, if you want to put it that way. Paul gives an example. He would never have known that coveting or lusting is sin without the law, which commands you shall not covet. Zane Hodges says, How sin did this has already been suggested in verse 5 in Paul's mention of the yearnings for sin that the law awakens. But the responsibility for that lies with sin itself. All that the law actually did was to make Paul aware of the evil dispositions of his own heart that it was capable of harboring. In this way, sin took advantage by stimulating and drawing forth from Paul the sinful desires inherent in his sinful nature. End quote. Folks, apart from the law, sin is dead. That is, sin is not a moral dilemma unless God announces that something is a moral dilemma through the law. So because God gave us his moral law, for example, the Ten Commandments, And we in the New Testament era have the law of Christ, in which Christ summarized the Ten Commandments in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and so on, and then love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus amended the second one to say, love others as I have loved you. It makes it even stronger. When God says, thou shalt not, he's defining what is sinful. I think we all get that. 
By the way, the sinful nature to which Hodges refers is defined by Paul as sin that dwells in me. Did you catch that in verse 17? We'll get there. But that's what Paul calls it, sin that dwells with me. I prefer to call it indwelling sin, which is similar. It is resident in the soul aspect of our being, and that's why our souls need saving. And that's a lifelong process called sanctification, in which we become more and more conformed to Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 9, where Paul becomes transparent about sinning in his own life. This is a shocking statement for Paul. Verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul uses the first person pronoun I in this chapter numerous times. I started to count them and lost count, so I quit. I don't know, there's 20 or 30 of them. And he uses them to refer to his own personal struggles with sin and the law. This has prompted many theologians to claim Paul is talking about his life prior to regeneration. That view especially appeals to Calvinists because of their adherence to perseverance doctrine, which I explained a little more fully in last week's message, they cannot imagine that Paul could struggle in this manner as a believer. But Paul is talking to believers about matters of sanctification, so it would make no sense for him to give an example from his life before the time that he was regenerated. His statement in verse 9 also would not make sense if referring to his life as a Pharisee. Pharisees, of course, were wrapped up in legalism and therefore deadness. Paul says, I was alive once without the law. He's speaking of his life after believing on Jesus when he was dead to the Mosaic rituals and alive unto Christ. So in other words, after Paul understood who Jesus was and believed on him, Paul then had a change of life. He began to live for God. He began to be victorious in his new Christian life. But... Something happened to steal away his victory over sinning. He says the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. In a moment of weakness, Paul resorted to legalism. The commandment came. He stumbled into sinning, sin revived, as the Mosaic law shined a spotlight on his sin. The sin produced spiritual deadness in his soul. I died. And he remained in that condition for some time as long as he continued in legalism. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, after I came to know the Lord, I lived in victory for a time. I was alive. Ah, but then I resorted back to legalism. I stopped depending on the Holy Spirit and I fell back into legalism. And any Christian could have a testimony like this. And that continued for a time. And I died. That produced deadness in my soul. I died. And he remained in that condition. For how long, we don't know. Now, I have a question for you, and it's a rhetorical one, but didn't that also happen to Peter at Antioch? Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and following. This is later on. But Peter had a lapse where when the Jewish entourage came from Jerusalem to Antioch to visit the church up there in Syria... Paul and Peter, who had been there before the entourage arrived, had been eating with the Gentiles. But when the entourage arrived, you know, James and the other dignitaries from Jerusalem, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles and stopped eating with them. And Paul had to call him out for that. 
Peter resorted back to legalism, and he began to stumble in other areas, apparently, in his life as well. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says, And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Paul describes how the principle of verse 5 impacted his own life. He says, The law produced in him a yearning to sin. But by yielding to sin, Paul discovered that his Christian life became spiritually dead. And mark it down. Any church which is legalistic will have lots of dead believers in that church. Now, they're believers, but they're spiritually dead if they're in agreement with that church because legalism deadens. Just mark that down. It's a very important fact. In fact, the sin which took advantage of Paul via the commandment killed him. I take this to mean fellowship with God was instantly severed. How can legalists be in fellowship with God? They can't, not according to Paul's testimony. Well, that raises a question, verses 12 and 13. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Paul wants to make something perfectly clear. He insists that the law is holy and just and good. After all, it was given by God. The law is not to blame for his sinning. Far from it. So you can never claim the devil made me do it, but you also can't claim, oh, those rules made me do it. (laughs) Sin is the problem. Sin used the law to arouse desires so that Paul yielded and sin then produced deadness. The law of God merely did its job putting a spotlight on sin, making it appear sinful. In fact, Paul uses the term exceedingly sinful. And why is that? Because when someone sins in spite of the law to the contrary, it is bald-faced defiance of God's will and therefore extremely sinful. If you know the law of God and you deliberately break the law of God, then that's just willful defiance of God's law. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. In contrast to the law which is spiritual, believers who yield to sin are carnal, fleshly, sold out as the slave of sin. By choosing to sin, they place themselves back under sin's dominion. They present their members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin rather than presenting them to God. And that had happened to Paul at some point earlier in his Christian life. He exposes his past errors in Romans 7 so we can learn from his mistakes. Aren't you thankful that Paul is transparent? I am. Romans 7 helps me. Now we're going to get into the juicy part here in just a moment, which I think will really help you if you grasp what he's saying here. Very practical and helpful, and I appreciate Paul's transparency. It's hard to admit you failed, but I'm thankful he does because it's going to help me not to fail. I can stay away from those things that caused him to fail. Look at verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. But what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Do you sense Paul's frustration? (laughs) Do you feel his pain? In the first sentence of this verse, he admits to spinning his wheels and not accomplishing anything of spiritual value. 
In the latter half of the verse, he describes sin's grip. When one is unable to do what they know is right and can only continue in what they know is wrong. You know what we call this? Habitual sinning. I believe here Paul is admitting to the fact that after coming to know the Lord and living victoriously for a time, he retreated back to legalism and habitual sinning. Now, we don't know what the sin was, and we don't really need to know, but he's being very transparent. This behavior confirms the law's function of doing good. It's keeping a spotlight on sin. Look at verse 16. If then I do what I will or wish not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So the law is just doing its job, Paul says. But then he says something unusual. Verse 17. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now what does he mean by this? Is Paul passing the blame? It's not my fault. Sin did it. Is that what he's saying? No, not at all. He's being specific. When Paul says, it is not I who keep sinning, that is, doing what I wish not to do, he is referring to his inner man, that is, the realm of the Spirit, And that will be confirmed for us when we get to verses 22 and 25. So Paul is referring to the inward man or the inner man as the I here who does not want to keep sinning. Okay, That's the spirit of his inner man. And we would expect that because his spirit has been regenerated. You know, if you're regenerated, you don't want to keep sinning. He died with Christ. He rose with Christ. He's now in union with Christ. And that's true of all believers who are in Christ. The old man died. The new man lives. And that's a reference to your spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Consequently, you have a new master, Jesus Christ. Your old master, sin, is powerless to rule over you. But... You can continue to submit to your old master. We talked about that last Sunday. How can that happen if your old man is gone? Remember, he's crucified. Because while your spirit has been saved or regenerated, your soul has not been regenerated. Now, I want you to think with me. Rather, your soul is in the process of being saved, but that happens over time as you submit to your new master. In that realm of your being, there will be a constant struggle. So in your soul, there's going to be an ongoing struggle, and the struggle is because of sin that dwells in you, also known as indwelling sin. So while your old nature has been eradicated, replaced by the new, And that happened in the realm of your spirit when you were initially saved. Your soul is in the process of change, also known as sanctification. But indwelling sin resists the saving of your soul. Verse 17. So Paul is not passing the blame. He's pinning the blame specifically on the rightful realm of his being. Not his spirit, not his body, but his soul. Specifically, sin that continues to dwell within his soul, indwelling sin. Now think about this. When you got saved, though your spirit changed instantaneously, your soul and body did not change. Right? You woke up the next morning, you were still the same weight. You were still the same height. Yeah, I know. Too bad, right? Not 10 pounds lighter. (laughs) 
You were still subject to the laws of gravity. For that matter, you were still subject to the laws of aging. You also woke up the next morning after being regenerated, the same person in your thinking and feeling and volition. Those old patterns and raging emotions that characterized you before you were saved, guess what? Next morning, they're still there. Now you have a new provision for dealing with them, but they're not instantly gone. But since you were given a new master, you were then able to start cooperating with God to bring change to your soul. And hopefully that has happened in your life as you become more and more changed into his image over the course of time, step by step. As you make choices to walk in the spirit rather than in the flesh. God is merciful and gracious to his children throughout this process of sanctification, for he knows that it takes time. Now I want you to get a clear picture of this. When you got saved, technically, according to the scriptures, it was your spirit, your inner man, that got regenerated and the Holy Spirit moved in. He then became your provision to help you to work on your soul in cooperation with God, because you can't do it on your own. But it's your soul that's the problem. Well, it's indwelling sin within your soul that's the problem. And that requires a lifetime of change. As you make decisions day by day, as you learn to get your thoughts under control, your feelings under control, that's a lifetime process. It's called sanctification. Or the scriptures also call it soul salvation, the saving of the soul, which is an actual biblical term. Look at James 1.21, for example. And you will be judged when you meet Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ based on whether your soul got saved or not. Sanctified unto maturity, if you prefer that term. But that's what happens. And that's where Paul is giving the detail as to how he could continue in sinning even though he had been saved. It could happen to any one of us. Now in our afternoon Bible study, we're going to find out why Calvinists deny that and say, no, the person who continues sinning is unsaved. It's because they take an entirely different view of man's being. We are three parts. Spirit, soul, and body to use the actual order that God uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But as we're going to see this afternoon, Calvinism says, no, we're two parts. We're body, material, and we're soul, spirit, immaterial. Ah, that makes a whole difference in thinking and theology. Let's move on to verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now this is very important rubber meets the road stuff here. But I want to point out something. Paul uses this term flesh. In so doing he's not referring to the body. Gnostics believe the body is evil. And that goes back to Manichaeism, 3rd century A.D. If the body were the problem, ah, we could solve that one, right? Flagellate the body. Some do that. Become ascetics. Become a monk. Live in a monastery. Deny yourself privileges. There would be absolutely no sexual relationship. Couldn't be married, of course. That's if the body itself were sinful. 
But that's not biblical. The problem is not the body per se, it's the soul. A fleshly soul is self-seeking, has sinful desires, worldly pursuits, and enjoys material pleasures. Now, don't miss this point. Fleshly behaviors are often carried out in the body, but they're rooted in the soul, so the body, per se, is not evil. It's the flesh within the soul, verse 18, that's evil, Sin that dwells in me, or indwelling sin. Thus the soul needs to be saved from sinning and indulging in fleshly appetites. I hope you get this. Very important. It's in the realm of the soul that we think impure thoughts and entertain sinful ideas. It's in the realm of the soul that we feel like we want something and we succumb to the urge. It's in the realm of the soul that we make willful choices To disobey God. Paul says in verse 18, to will is present with me. In other words, in his spirit, his innermost being, Paul desires to do right. And he wishes to carry that out. But he doesn't know how to carry out those wishes because of his sinful soul. In fact, he frankly admits, I can't seem to do the good that I want to do. And the evil that I want to avoid, well, I end up doing it. Can you sympathize? Yeah, it's the human problem, right, for believers? And what a perplexing problem it is. A spirit that wants to do right, a soul that doesn't want to cooperate because of indwelling sin, but instead teams up with the body to do evil deeds. The soul is in cahoots, we might say, with the body. The body itself isn't sinful, but it follows along what the soul wants to do. Look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. As Christians, we discover a new law or principle that governs our lives by default. Although we have died to sin and sin is no longer our master, we find that sin aggressively works to usurp the authority of our new master. Sin says, get that Jesus off the throne of your life. I want to be on the throne of your life. That's sin. Our regenerated spirit says, I want to live righteously. But indwelling sin or fleshliness in the soul continually fights against doing right. Now, is that your experience? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. It's the experience of all Christians. It certainly was Paul's, at least at one point in his Christian life. Look at verses 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, Paul has already given us one law or principle, and that's the law of indwelling sin. Verse 21, evil is present with me. That's the soul's propensity to sin. But then he adds three more laws. The second is the law of God, verse 22. That's the moral aspect of the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, summed up by Jesus in two commands in the New Testament, love God, love your neighbor, also known as the law of Christ, Galatians 6 and verse 2. The desire in your regenerated spirit or your inward man is to live righteously. The third law that Paul gives or principle is the law of sin in the members, verse 23. 
Now the members are the body parts, which carries out the evil that has been festering in the soul and often results in addictions. Now I said earlier the body is not sinful of itself, but what happens when the soul convinces the body to get involved in drugs or alcohol? It becomes addictive to the body. Even though sin is not centered in the body, it's centered in the soul, but it convinces the body to partake in things it should not, and it becomes addictive. Examples, lust in the soul that often manifests in fornication or adultery in the body, cravings in the soul to take in a substance that will make you feel good, or alter your mind and consciousness, and often leads to alcohol or drug addiction. That's what Paul's talking about, the law of sin in the members. Addictive sins. And then finally, number four, we have the law of the mind or thoughts in verse 23. Now, seeing that the law in the members, that is the body, wars against the law of the mind, the context implies that Paul views the law of the mind as good. It wants to do right and maybe thinks about the downsides of addiction or sexual fornication but is often overwhelmed by bodily cravings so that the law of sin in the members wins out. Now think about it. With two of these laws working against us in the soul and the body, how can we ever live righteously finding victory over sin? Well, Paul sensed the same frustration, and look what he says in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? You ever scream that out? Hmm. I think we all have. And I ask, do you sense his desperation? Do you feel his pain? Victory over sin seems like a no-win situation. And many Christians have accepted it as the norm. Defeat as their norm. That's not what Christ intended. He didn't expect you to end with Romans 7. He expected you to move on into Romans 8. (laughs) And we experience the same frustration Paul had as children of God. Now, if the chapter were to end there, we would be in a miserable condition with no way out. Is there any relief? Well, yes, look at verse 25. After Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he kind of sums up the argument in the end. He says, I still have this conflict, but I know there's an answer in Jesus. Now he still hasn't given us the details, the nuts and bolts that'll come next Sunday when we go to Romans 8. But Paul's given us a peek in the box and it's exciting. There's light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train. (laughs) Here's the point. Jesus is the answer. He cuts through the overwhelming presence of sin in the soul that plays out in the body. And so Paul concludes by saying, The mind wants to serve the law of God, which is rooted in the Spirit, but the flesh, which is your soul in league with your body, wants to serve the law of sin. And that's a dilemma. But Paul says the way to navigate this common problem in Christianity is through Jesus Christ. In the next chapter, he's going to tell us how to have victory over sinning through Jesus Christ. But in this chapter, he's made very clear how not to have victory over sinning. And how is that? Well, for first century Jews, it's through continued dependence on the Mosaic rituals for pleasing God. 
practicing circumcision, keeping the dietary laws and the Sabbaths and the feast days and the 613 Mosaic laws, well, that won't please God, for it will not make one spiritual. But by way of application for all of you, 21st century believers, spiritual deadness and defeat are ensured for those who think they must hold to certain rules or standards or lists to be sanctified and acceptable to God. If you're a legalist, you're dead spiritually. And you'll remain dead spiritually until you crawl out of legalism by the help of the Holy Spirit. Once you realize the truth and you start depending on him for victory. Thus, legalism in all of its forms is deadening, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Jesus is the answer. And Paul's going to break through the gloom of chapter 7 and chapter 8, which is about living in the power of the Holy Spirit who alone brings life. And we'll see that in our next message. If you're living in legalism, forsake that sinful approach to God and seek his forgiveness. Learn the principle that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We're going to see that in Romans 8 verse 2. And by all means, beware the deadening effects of legalism. This can be revolutionary for Christians who want to please God. Literally, this can be revolutionizing truth. So I hope you'll meditate on it. Think it through, pray it through, ask God for help. If you have any questions, I'll do my best to answer. But read Romans 7 over and over again. And then follow it up with Romans 8. Glorious truth. Let's bow in prayer.